Welcome to Rolling for Change. My name is Woody Harris. I am a therapist and a board game enthusiast, and I have been for quite some time. I am joined by my friends Brian Peace and Josue Cardona. Brian, introduce yourself. My name is Brian Peace. I'm an English teacher, board game collector, and player. Um, and I use the dreaded um. An English teacher using an um. That's kind of pathetic, isn't it? We'll be okay. Josue, what's up? Um, my name is Josue Cardona, and I'm also a therapist. I don't mind my ums. Um, and I'm also a gamer. And that, that's all I got for now. Okay, excellent. We are, this is our first ever episode of Rolling for Change, so bear with us. We are going to make mistakes, and you are going to laugh at us, and that's good. Because if we're bringing some fun to you, that's, that's a really good thing. So today we are going to talk about worker placement games. And we're going to kind of take them apart and make some sense of worker placement game experience. But first we're going to talk a little bit about our experiences recently with board games and, and board gaming. And I, there's, there, I've played a lot of great games recently. And I'll just talk about a few. And you guys can bring up some as well. Um, the my favorite game. I, I was recently at a, a, a thing called Gamerama. Gamerama is this great little uh, Atlanta convention. Uh, maybe about maybe what three hundred people. Give Brian, or take. Brian was there with me. Give or take three hundred people and uh, board games everywhere. And I got to play the Star Wars Queen's Gambit game. Now this is an Avalon Hill game that is no longer available. Actually, it's Avalon Hill after being purchased by Hasbro. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's a property, you know. It, they owned the property momentarily for Phantom Menace, so they were able to create this this amazing board game. Never mind the the movie. The board game is a fantastic skirmish between two people. One person plays the dark side, one person plays the light side, and you battle on four fronts. One front is uh, the area with uh, Darth Maul facing off against Obi Wan and against Qui Gon Jinn. Another area is. Anakin trying to get to the droid control ship and knock it out. Another area is the the uh, Naboo Palace where the Queen and the guards are trying to get to the top level to, to meet with the Trade Federation and cause them to force a settlement. And then finally you have the Gungan battle on the fields of Naboo. Uh, but, and it's listed as a two to four player game. The fact that this game is not easy to get a hold of made it even more enjoyable. My friend George and I played it and... Uh, the, the greatest thing was we put on the, the soundtrack to Phantom Menace and listened to it while we were doing this amazing battle. Un- unfortunately, the dark side won. I did not do a good job of playing Qui-Gon or Obi-Wan. Unfortunately, nothing. If I were playing that game on the light side, I'd lose every time just so I could see the Gungans die. <laughs> you are a masochist. Hey, fun fact, there's a video on YouTube. I think it's a 10-minute it actually may be a lot longer. It might be an hour-long loop of Duel of the Fates. Perfect for a long game. Yeah, yeah, just that one song. Just a nonstop loop for about an hour. It's fantastic. That's perfect for playing that game because that's the the song you really need during that game. Of course. So that was really exciting. That was something that's not available anywhere. If you look on Amazon right now, it's like $300. So... Uh, it was just a great head-to-head battle, and we were both sweating it out. And there was even uh, someone who was kind of breathing over our shoulders who needed to take the game home with him. So he's he's kind of breathing over our shoulders and giving us some pressure. So it made it even more exciting. It was it was a fantastic game. How about you, Brian? Okay, 
I played a game at um, at this con. Momocon? No, um, Gamerama. Okay, Gamerama. I just got, all right, as of this recording, I just got back from staffing at Momocon in Atlanta, Georgia. I am brain fried, so if I stumble, just, you know, forgive me a little bit. Uh, I played La Isla. La Isla. Oh, yes, the new Steffenfeld. It's one of the simpler Steffenfelds I've played. It's a nice little game where you're checking out a, um, a, a jungle and trying to gather up um, various species of animals to get victory points. Fairly simple game, really, once you once you understand how the game works. But I fell so thoroughly in love with it that I bought it on the spot. Um, uh, yeah, they happened to have a copy for sale there, and I just snagged it immediately. And my wife was behind me on it, which made it a little easier to make the purchase. She liked the game, too. Oh, she really likes it. We played it two-player the other night. We enjoyed this one, too. We played it a couple of weeks ago. And Stefan Feld game. Mr. Josue, what are you playing? So I did my homework, and I, I played some worker placement games. Uh, actually, just, just the one, actually. And then I went on vacation, and all I've been playing uh, since I got back uh, just a couple of days ago. I had an itching for a, an RPG, and you know I, I play a lot of video games, so I started playing Chrono Trigger. I don't know if either of you ever played it. Is, is that a, very, a video game, or is that a... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's an old uh, mm-hmm. Super Nintendo um, video game, uh, role-playing game. It's fantastic. Has time travel. I've been playing that, but not too much. Uh, not too much in the realm of board gaming. Just uh, played Lords of the Waterdeep, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about later. Absolutely, uh, yes. yeah. as homework. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I give my co-hosts co-hosts homework so that uh, we'll, we're all kind of on the same page. We all we were all playing worker placement games for the last few weeks. Oh, if all homework were like that. Right? I mean, <laughs> okay, children, go home and play uh, Stone Age and then report back to me in the morning on your experience of Stone Age and write <laughs> a three-page essay on your experience of Stone Age. That's awesome. Why can't yeah. schools be like that, Josue? There are some. I mean, there are some teachers that do you know, see the value in a lot of games and, and use them as um, topics for discussion and... and a, a way to get into uh, critical thinking and things like that. I mean, not 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 enough. Not, none of my teachers did that, but I, I know they're out there. Yeah, none of my teachers did that either. I'm actually sitting across from a teacher who who may be doing something like that. He better be doing something like well, that. Well, we used um, we used Forbidden Island in a in a class that I was teaching. I happened to be um, filling in in a math class um, for a couple days while a teacher was out and. Uh, I used Forbidden Island to teach them fractions and um, probabilities. What are the odds that this card is going to come up? Okay. okay. How many cards are left in the deck? How many of those cards are left in the deck? Well, how many cards are left in the deck is at the bottom. How many of those cards is at the top? Simplify the fraction. That's your chance that something horribly bad is going to happen over the next couple of turns. How did that work? It worked very well. The kids dug it. Oh, yeah, a couple of the kids who kept saying, I don't know how to do any of this, I don't know how to do any of this, were figuring it out in a heartbeat because they wanted to know how bad they were screwed. Excellent. All right. <laughs> I, I love hearing things like that. I love hearing games being used in classrooms or, or any professional setting. That, that's part of the reason that I started Rolling for Change. So that, that's exciting. The hardest part for them was dealing with the idea of a cooperative game because they were all still trying to compete for who got each piece from from the island, each each idol that they had to gather, 
and they wanted to be the one who got it. And I kept telling them, you know, it, it doesn't really matter if you're the one who got it. You know, somebody else could get it. And, you know, let's let, just let them give it to you and you can hold it. And you contributed to getting it. It, it took them a while to get that idea. They really were highly, highly, highly competitive over who got the idols. People are not very aware of uh, cooperative games, it seems. No. Because they, they're so used to Monopoly and, and Payday and whatever else is out there on the, on the shelves at Target. So this is a perfect opportunity for me to talk about the research paper that I, I read this week. Um, the, the, the research paper is called Cultural Determinants of Board Game Preferences. And this is, put to, this is actually uh, from the University of Warsaw uh, by a, a, a gentleman named Mikhail Mijal. And I believe that one of the challenges of the article is that he is translating into English and it probably says a lot uh, about the article uh, that doesn't quite fit in the way that English works. Like he uses the word should a lot in this paper, like it should happen this way. Uh, at any rate, what he's done and... I'll throw it back to you guys, and you guys let me know what you think. But what he's done is he's tried to use Board Game Geek as a reference tool for identifying whether various cultures gravitate towards certain styles of board gaming. And one of the interesting things that that he was trying to do was he was trying to go through and identify the various topics of board games and how they applied to various cultures. So he picked... Some popular mechanics in board games. He picked dice rolling, roll, spin, and move, set collection, hex encounter games, and hand management to look at across cultures. And I don't know, before I get into his results, what, what do you guys think about that, that idea? So uh, I grew up in Puerto Rico, and really the only games that felt, I don't know, like traditional were um, a specific way to play dominoes. And a specific card game um, using a Spanish deck of cards, you know, from Spain. And so outside of Puerto Rico, I've never met anybody who who play those games. Like when I meet people who play dominoes, like they say, like they play very different than, than we would play it in Puerto Rico. And uh, the card game, like first of all, nobody's ever seen those uh, Spanish cards like in the States, you know, anywhere I lived or anywhere, and, um, any, anywhere I would go. But I did find a game that was very similar called Euchre, um, and that's a card similar game, to the right? game that we play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can play it with like uh, just a, a regular deck of cards. And actually, what do you call what I, what I just call a regular deck of cards? A regular, regular deck, deck of cards. cards. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to have a name, though. It's got to have a name. Typically, um, they're called playing cards. Standard playing cards. I guess. Okay. Well, I was recently listening to Rich Summer, <laughs> which I, I want to point out this this podcast to people in case they missed it. Rich Summer's podcast is called Cardboard, and Rich Summer was a uh, was a character on Mad Men. But one of the things he was talking about was game systems because he wanted to talk about how to take games with you on trips. And and the game he called decks of cards one game system because it's a multiple you can do multiple things with it and yeah. carry just one deck and you're in good shape, right? Because you're not taking all of Terra Mystica with you or something like that. Yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. And, and and again, so so to the, to my point from before, there were specific games that I felt were a part of that part of my culture. You know, something that I only people who had lived in Puerto Rico really were familiar with them, and it seemed like everybody was familiar with them. 
And so I kind of uh, I'm interested to see what the results were because I've I've seen that in my own life where, yeah, I mean, where you are and and, you know, your environment, your culture can actually, you know, uh, what's the word? Uh, well, it, it can certainly impact your choices in games. I yeah, believe. influence. Yeah, yeah, it can influence your your game choices, because really that's that's all I had. And we had access to all sorts of other board games and Monopoly and stuff like that, but it was it was also uh, generational. You know, it was one thing that were my my grandparents would play it, and my they wouldn't play Monopoly, but they would play these these card games, and so would my aunts and uncles and my my parents and and me. And then at school, we'd all play it. It was really interesting. So you think there's a difference in in the way that dominoes are played, and that's a rule set that you're talking about there. Like like we play, I guess if we're comparing it to USA or or maybe even uh, the UK or something, we're playing a different game with those same elements than you would play when you were in Puerto Rico. Yeah. Yep. yep. What do you What do you attribute that to? Is it just a like is it just a cultural learning phenomenon, or is it the I, I want to get into what this guy says about the article, but I I guess I want to. Like, what do you think is the main reason those differences exist? Um, the I've never researched it too much, but my guess is that it's just something that we inherited from Spain, you know? Um, like, the, the fact that those playing cards are there. And, I mean, and actually, because Puerto Rico is like a, an, an island, it's all on its own, um, you know... It, the game may have come up organically, you know, and then, uh, you know, someone found a set of dominoes and made up a new game and then it just permeated that area. And, and that's just what people played because it's interesting. There's no variations on it. There was never, Oh, what game are we going to play? There were just, there was, there was one just game one dominoes game. It wasn't like yep. take a deck of cards and we could play Rami or we could play Euchre. We could play, you know, whatever. Exactly. Exactly. The same thing with the Spanish playing cards. It was like, what are we playing? You know? Okay. We have this this pack of cards. That's it. And then I would have a traditional pack of playing cards, and I would, with that, I could play, you know, poker or blackjack or solitaire or anything like that. And actually, they they translate, right? They're just different figures. You can actually replace one for the other. It's, it it really doesn't matter. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't even an option. It was like, well, what are we playing? There were different rules that were also localized. You know, maybe mm-hmm. people on one in one town are used to playing with this set of rules. But it was really just the same game. It was just dominoes, and it was a specific, very specific rule set. But I don't know where it came from. I don't know. Okay, next next time we get together, you've got to show me how you play dominoes because I now want to know. Yeah, it's, absolutely. It's the same way um, um, a lot of my students were talking, and the ones about, about Monopoly. We were discussing mm-hmm. game theory you know, in, in this math class, which they were boggled. What, what the heck are we talking about game theory for? And it led <laughs> into a math discussion. Um. Which, you know, oh God, I have to go to a math discussion. Anyway, um, we're talking about different variations on Monopoly right. and how, depending on where you live, you play Monopoly differently. For instance, um, some of my students, the American students, whenever you land on $500, whenever, whenever you land on free parking, uh, free parking you get $500 because yeah. you have $500 in the middle. Others said, well, don't you, whenever you, you know, have to pay money to the bank, do you, don't you put it in the middle and that's a big pot to get? And they said, oh, yeah, we hadn't thought about that. But no, we just put $500 in the middle and get that. So they had their own variations. People who weren't born in America mm-hmm. said, why, why do you put anything on free parking? It's no. certainly not part of the rules. Yeah, and they said it's not part of the rules. Said, and, of course, the American students said it, it isn't. 
because they'd never read the rules. They'd just right. been taught by their parents who were taught by their parents who were taught variations that they learned along the way. And no matter where you go in America, free parking means you get money. Yeah, I think house rules start to really kick in and they stick with people for a long time. Those house rules have been... I've never played Monopoly without the free parking, even though I've heard that Monopoly doesn't have free parking. And I know I've read the rules, but never paid attention to, you know, this distinction. Free parking was designed so that whenever someone gets hotels on the orange and red spaces, which are the most frequently landed on spaces, you thank God you landed on free parking and have to pay them nothing. (laughs) That's all that's all it's supposed to be. Also, people from America tend to not use auctioning. Right, which is a very rules, important part of Which of is Monopoly. extremely important. And people from outside the country are boggled when they play the game with Americans. They say, no, you just don't buy it. You just keep moving. Haven't you read the rules? And the people from outside the country are like, yes, we've read the rules. Have you not? <laughs> <laughs> Uno is another game that I find that a lot with. It's like everybody knows how to play Uno, but everybody has different house rules for how to play it. Okay, so not to get stuck sucked down the rabbit hole because we're, we're talking about a lot of games here. I, will, I want to go a little bit more over this, this, this research so you guys can understand why I'm, I'm interested in this research. So one of the things that he did was he, he tried to create a link between game mechanics and cultural dependent variables. Um, and and he, he did this as follows. So power distance in cultures with a higher power distance, there should be, he says, there should be a visible disposition towards games with a competitive aspect but with little confrontation. Um, he, he does this with several categories, but basically what he's saying is that based on the way that people conduct themselves socially, they're more likely to play games that would reflect that experience. So a, a, a culture that is more focused on a collectivism would be more focused on cooperative games, whereas a culture more focused on individualism would play more individualized games. So things like you were talking about Forbidden Island. Forbidden Island would not maybe appeal in, in this guy's view to an American because Forbidden Island is a cooperative game. It's not an individualistic game. And I, I thought he made a lot of assumptions that just didn't pan out. Uh, but that was that was kind of what he was saying. Was th- This is my, my thesis for my paper here, basically. That, that does kind of bear out a little bit, though, because if you, if you... I've spoken to people from Germany, and they say if you pull out a war game in general, it's not going to get a high reception rate in Germany among German people. Right. They they do not they want to play euros where there's absolutely no conflict. You're 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 trying to go for the for individual scoring, but there's no take that aspect. There's no in your face anything. You're basically playing multiplayer solitaire. Right. They there, like there's that. There's a little they bit don't... of an explanation for this actually, um, and and listeners will have to correct me if I'm wrong, but this is the way I understand it. Basically, the war games were kind of growing up in America. You know, the first guy that created a war game was actually H. G. Wells. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're we're over here creating war games based on World War II, which didn't paint Nazi Germany no. all that pretty, or Germany in general, right? So when they're developing games in Germany, they're trying to develop things that do not remind them of the confrontations they've had. So they are looking for, I mean, you know what we get? They're they're farming sheep and they're they're building roads you know they're they're rebuilding the structures of their community basically in their games it, it makes perfect sense to me actually and building a <clears throat> power grid well yeah <laughs> sorry that's a step i really down, that's a I, step down the road i really like that game though that is a great game <laughs> so the, one of the things he says here is only some of the ratings are consistent with the expectation that players from the country with a high long term orientation index 
uh, would rate the games with a strong strategic component higher than players from the country with a low value of this index. Two Dames contradicts this statement. To Call and Ticket to Ride. Now, this is where it gets kind of weird to me. He says that with Ticket to Ride, ratings of American players are highly likely, uh, high, higher likely because of the aspect of patriotism, as if all American users are, are dominating BGG and focusing on, oh, we play Ticket to Ride because it's an American edition. I don't know. I think most of us would say that the European edition is a better game anyway. I, the, the, I, I feel the reason why Ticket to Ride is, goes over so well in America is because we're not a gaming country. In Germany, there are per capita more gamers, more people who play these Euro-style board games. Right. In America, it's just like this awakening. People are just starting to discover them. So the vast majority of people are learning are gateway games, the games that get you in the door. And Ticket to Ride is the apex predator of, like of gateway games. I apex predator. <laughs> I introduced the game to five people this weekend. One person at the table knew how to play. By the time it was over, they all wanted to play again. Excellent. And most of the people sitting at that table had no idea how to play any of the board games we had. So... Bless you, my son. You have done well. I, I try. You I have try. you have evangelized our community. <laughs> Ticket to Ride does it itself. I mean, it's it's just it really does that game. There's something about it. I, I agree with Brian. Oh yeah, it stands out as a great gateway game. Uh, I, I think it's an even better gateway game than something like Carcassonne, which is a fairly easy game. But it, it's a it brings people in very easily. I think I think people uh, people tend to like the train games anyway. It seems to me. And Americans especially like the idea that you can block each other from routes. They like that slight, just little bit of poking with a knife. So this article, the the challenging thing about this article, I mean, he's tried to compare Chinese and and German and American cultures. Mm -hmm. And I think he's tried to do it in a way that doesn't make a lot of sense, at least not to those of us who are like in the board game community and excited about board games. He's making a lot of assumptions that seem like they are outside of our community. But what at least he did say at the end was that it's kind of a null hypothesis. I can't really determine this based on Board Game Geek. And I'm sure you guys have your own opinions about what Board Game Geek can offer to us and what Board Game Geek can't offer to us. Uh, but that is that, that was the limits of his research ability, was he used Board Game Geek to kind of identify what are people buying in Germany, what are people trying to buy in, in America, and, and et cetera, et cetera, just trying to use that as a database for developing an academic study of board games. Fascinating idea. I got to say his, his, his conclusion about ticket to ride being because it's an American board by an American designer makes it more popular in America. That's, that's a that's a simple case of causation and correlation. And yeah. he can, he can pull in that Americans tend to like that, but un, until he actually polls people and asks them why, you know, Trying to draw conclusions based on raw data is kind of it, it doesn't seem to fit in a in a research paper of that sort. Before we move on, I, I have thought about this quite a lot. It is really hard as an as an academician who someone who's going to try to research games as an academic pursuit kind of thing. It's got to be. I, I don't even know how you're going to do it because each game has its own. Like you'd have to you'd have to study each game in its own context rather than saying okay. We can compare things like Ticket to Ride and Power Grid, or we can compare something like Kalos to Zolkin. 
Maybe a little bit, yeah. But it seems like if you're going to try to take the the principal pieces apart and analyze them and try to identify what is this doing to us, it's going to be a really challenging kind of idea. I don't know. Yeah, the the. I mean, he's obviously generalizing. I mean, how many people who are in the gaming community actually use, uh, you know, game board uh, board game geek to the degree that he needs to have, you know, some some valid findings. I mean, every uh, everything about it. I mean, I think it's a good start. I mean, there there aren't too many right. places to go to find that information. So it's I right. can't and think of a better for, place either. Yeah. Yeah. If you're looking for data, I mean, that's a great place to go, but it's not a accurate representation of the board game community as a whole. Yeah. And the ticket to ride thing does bother me, because I don't. Is there a ticket to ride in a fictional location, or are they all actual maps? I'm waiting for it. They're all actual yeah. maps. Yeah, they're yeah, all actual yeah. maps so far. Right. Yeah. Based and on then, historical data, basically. Yeah, yeah. And then, I mean, like Brian said, you know, or, or no, no, it was you who said, you know, like most people who've seen the different versions probably prefer one of the other ones. Um, yeah, I don't I don't buy the, the patriotic aspect of it. No, I, I thought no. that was a little bit presumptuous on his part. To yeah. his credit, though, he did point out all the limitations of using BoardGameGeek as a database, so... Okay. Uh, I, I just thought that it was an interesting article, and what I'd like to do each week or each time we get together here is to pull an article and talk about it amongst ourselves and just kind of get our, our feedback on it because we're, we're trying to get into an understanding of board games here. Yeah, and, and that's great food for that. And I would love to visit, you know, if I'm ever you know in another country to be able to find either a gaming group or a meetup or, or a convention hopefully and just look around and see how different it is from some of our conventions that would be that would be fantastic even just within the states i mean have you guys been to to any con, any gaming conventions on different parts of the country just to see how they vary well i, I not not in the sense of like the game arama that we just went to I, you know i've been to gen con yeah. But I think that's a whole different animal, and you can't really compare the, the Yeah, that has everything. Gen, yeah. yeah, Gen Con's more of a trade show. It's more about, you know, come look at the new pretties. And uh, a place like Gamerama or, you know, some of these local board gaming things that are happening here in Atlanta, uh, this is just a bunch of gamers getting together playing games. So I, I think that it's going to be interesting to sort of take apart our experiences. And I, I'd love to... <laughs> Here's a dream. Let's all get together and and tour like four different board game conventions in different sections of of America and have some kind of idea of how to rate things. Uh, that that's just think about it. We'll we'll wait till we win, win the lottery. Yeah, well, and and I mean, we mentioned different going to going to different conventions and things like that. So I mean, you know, that's that's more homework. You know, <laughs> next time we're at a convention, we'll take notes and look around. Twist my arm on homework about board gaming. <laughs> yeah, something I'd never complained about. Complained to my mom that I didn't want to do. So, so let's transition here. Uh, let's talk about our main theme, which is worker placement games. I, I picked worker placement games to talk about because that uh, worker placement games are the genesis of Rolling for Change. And I'll I'll say a little bit about that, but I don't want to uh, cloud it up too much. I, I played a worker placement game. Uh, when I first really recognized or come in, came into the local board gaming community. And it was a Steffenfeld game called Trajan. And it hurt my brain in ways I can't even explain. Uh, just the number of choices that were available to me. But before we, we get too deep into this, Brian, can you tell us exactly what is a worker placement game? Because that's a tough one. Well, at, the, at its most 
core being is a game where you take a worker and you place it and you get something from that worker. There are different variations on it. Um, the most basic one ones are um, like uh, Stone Age or Pillars of the Earth, where you simply place a worker and either you immediately get a return on that, that worker or you wait until everyone's placed their workers and everyone gets their, their goods or cards or whatever, whatever you're going to be gathering up in order of resolution. Um, but typically it's all about planning ahead, get figuring out what other people want and getting there before them and gathering goods to build things, either a building or complete quests like in Lords of Waterdeep or to get enough money to buy gems, which are victory points like, um, Istanbul. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a, it's just a simple matter of, like I said, placing a worker and getting a profit from it that you will then use later to build something else in the game. Right. And a lot of times I think that creates a limit of possibilities. So in a lot of worker placement games, I don't know them all, but in a lot of worker placement games, you place your worker and no one else can place their worker. Mm-hmm. So you, you close the door on some other options when you place that worker because you have such a limited number of resource guys to put in these worker placements. So, you know, if you think about it in terms of like, well, what am I going to do today? Uh, well, okay, I'm going to wash dishes and then I'm going to go and clean the car and then I'm going to get some food. So you're, you're in, in a sense, you're putting your workers in, in place for all, your whole day, basically, because you're making some decisions. And as a result, you close out other decisions. And some of the most recent ones have allowed people to take their, take a spot where someone else has already placed a worker, but they have to pay the person who's in that spot money on top of what they have to pay to normally get something. Right. Like Istanbul, where you have to pay money depending on how many people are there to each, per, each other player. So you enrich other people, but you get to use the space too. I read a description on BoardGameGeek, and you know, I was like, how do they define what a, what a worker placement game is? And there's something really interesting. It said uh, that these games are really action drafting games. Right, and it's it's what you guys said. It's that there's only a certain, a very limited number of options. You know, maybe five options, and it's kind of like first come first serve. You know, it's like, well, you know, now that this one's taken, these now you have four options left, and someone else plays, and now you have three options left. And I didn't see it that way, but I love that term of action drafting. You know, you're kind of like, oh, I want this one, I want that one, I want that one, and and I realized that it was more about those possibilities than even the the resource management like i always saw it as a resource management but really your most uh precious resource in a worker placement game is the the actions available to you right yeah so you've recently played some worker placement games and i i I don't want to give away too much but you haven't played a lot of worker placement games in your life so far you you're just kind of coming into the hobby and into the world of gaming and yep. what is your impression of these style of games? Um, I've only played the one so far. Okay. And, and again, looking at it that way, once you realize that that's what's going on, that you're kind of looking at your available options and then building a strategy based on not only all of the, the ones that are available, but constantly shifting that depending on how other people are playing, it was really cool. It was a lot of fun. And it, it's not a very difficult uh, thing to grasp. You know, because in, in a lot of games, you, you may have, you always have 10 different options, maybe, you know, to do something. Mm-hmm. But in a worker placement game, that 
that changes every round. And I don't know, it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, so just to highlight the one that you're talking about, you're talking about Lords of Waterdeep, which is one you recently played. Yeah, I walked into a game shop and I said, I want to play a worker placement game. He said, then you want to play Lords of Waterdeep. Like, All right. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> yeah. And so if you if you use games as a reflection of yourself, what, do you, what did you find out about yourself playing worker placement games? So there's this, there's this um, just acronym that I've, I've heard lately. It's FOMO, right? It's a fear of missing out. And I ah, thought that ooh. these games are, are like a great analogy for that. You know, because you start playing and you, you kind of, you know, you, you know that your best option is option number three. And you're really hoping that nobody picks option number three. And then, ah, somebody picks option number three. And you're like, damn it, now I need to, you know, now I need to rethink my strategy. And I need to think about what I'm going to do. And you kind of, you play with this, um, again, that, that, that idea that you, you really want to do that one thing, but you may not be able to. And... You need to be flexible, and and in a game like this, you know, in real life, sometimes it's an it's a choice whether you want to be flexible or rigid. And in these games, uh, that that choice is kind of taken away from you, right? It's like, well, you only have five choices now. You have four now. You have three now. You have two, and and that's it. You know, you can your only other choice is to leave the game. You know, but in the middle of the game, you have your choices are dwindling, and then you you have to adapt and think, well. You know, based on what I have available, I can still make this work, or I can still move towards this goal that I have, which is winning the game in in one of you know maybe three different ways by doing this based on what I have. And I think that you know the seeing that in your own life is really hard to do sometimes. And kind of this analogy works really really well when you when you kind of look at it that way. Like, well, what if you had to pick choice? number two instead of number three how would that work out could you still move towards your goal yeah i think a, a key element of this game is frustration <laughs> uh, the the kind of the adage around the house is if i'm sitting there on my ipad and suddenly say damn it <laughs> i have lost the place that i wanted to place my worker usually to my wife usually to brian's wife yes <laughs> We all curse her name from time to time when we're playing Lords of Waterdeep on our iPads. So, Brian, what, talk about your experience with worker placement games. Well, I'd played quite a few worker placement games. I think the first one was um, Pillars of the Earth, based on the book and TV series. Um, and I really enjoyed that one. And the next one I played was Agricola. And holy crap, is there a huge world of difference there. In... In most worker placement games, there's usually, you have a lot of workers and a lot of options. And it's mainly about getting to the option before someone else does. In Agricola, it's a game of subsistence farming. It's all about scarcity. Not, mm -hmm. not necessarily scarcity of actions, but scarcity of workers. You start with only two family members. And you don't even have the option of making another worker until later on in the game. It is a game where you have to look down at your score sheet and say, okay, I'm going to lose points somewhere. I'm not going to be able to get cows and sheep and swine and get corn planted and get wheat planted and build all the fences and take up all my spaces. I can't do all this. There's it's just impossible. too many options. There are too many options. So you've got to figure out the ones that are going to make you the most points so that whenever you do inevitably lose points... You're not losing them to having to beg for food 
And it's just, it's an exercise in frustration. The first time I played it, I wasn't sure if I liked it or not because I was just so frustrated through the majority of the game. And then I got to the end and realized that's kind of what the whole game is about. It's about dealing with that frustration and optimizing your actions so that you can, even though you got screwed out of the space you need, what can you do this round? Don't focus on what you can't do. Focus on what you can do to make, to increase your, your livelihood, increase your wealth, increase your ability to survive. My son, whenever that game came out, was in, I think, uh, he was maybe 12. He's 19 now. He was 12 at the time, and that was the first board game he chose for himself to get. He played it. He liked it. He held the box and felt how freaking heavy it was. <laughs> I told him, you can pick any game on these shelves, and it's your game. And he said, this one. I said, you, for your very first game, chose a game about medieval subsistence farming. That's my boy. <laughs> So if it's if it's a game about frustration, and I think we all agree that why why do we keep coming back and back to a game about frustration? Why is it so highly Agricola is highly rated on Board mm-hmm. Game Geek? It, it's uh, Caverna is actually getting close to topping it now because Caverna, you know, it, for those who don't know, Caverna is kind of the replacement for Agricola. But at any rate, why are these games even coming close to the top? Why do we want to be frustrated? There are so. I- I really want to start using um, worker placement style games in my, not in my classroom, but in sort of a, a after school thing, because it teaches forward thinking. You have to think about the next couple of turns and what you want and what your strategy is going to be, and you have to learn how to deal with disappointment. You are never going to go through an entire worker placement game and get everything you planned on getting. Your best laid plans are going to be turned into mush, and you're going to have to pick up the pieces and work with what with with, with what you've got. And there are a lot of my students. I work in a um, in a youth um, youth treatment facility. A lot of my students have zero ability to deal with disappointment, to deal with loss, to deal with the fact that their plans didn't work out the way they wanted them to. And I think it would be a really good tool. Not Agricola. I think Agricola <laughs> might cause them to riot. Um, maybe something closer to Lords of Waterdeep. Riots of 2015 Lords in Atlanta. Of I remember those. Lords of Waterdeep might be a better one to start with there. Right. So this is this is my my take on on worker placements, and I, I think you have hit it on the head with, with your, your, your statements there about it. That we, we come back to it because maybe it is because in this microcosm uh, of the board game world, we can learn to deal with, and, and maybe we even realize at some base level that we have to learn to deal with disappointment in some way, shape, or form. And we use this opportunity to try to figure out, this, this is a minimal version of what it might be, you know, trying to deal with disappointment in our real life. You know, I didn't get into the school I wanted to, or I didn't get the, I didn't get the, the game system I wanted, or whatever it might be. Um, you know, kind of trying to bring it down to their level. It, it's about dealing with disappointment, which is a really strange thing that we've made this kind of mechanic in a game uh, to be this this really power. I mean, at least amongst our groups here in Atlanta, and I don't know about your experience, Josue, but amongst our groups here in Atlanta, it has been uh, worker placement is one of the most common things I see on the table. So, it, what I think. I got this feeling when I played Trajan because that was my experience when I first discovered what a worker placement game was. Which, for those who don't know Trajan, Trajan is uh, it, it's a point salad game. It's by Stefan Feld. It's full of opportunities to 
have your mind just go blank because there are so many choices available to you and so many paths to victory that you could possibly uh, embark upon that the sheer number of possibilities kind of leaves you in a dumbfounded state where you're like, I, 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 I don't know what to do. I'm just, it's, it's like that, that time when you're a kid and your mom sends you in for ketchup. She didn't give you any specific answer of what kind of ketchup to get. And you go into the store and there's like 30 different bottles of ketchup. You could be, you know, like, okay, I'll just grab one. Or you could get caught in the loop that I got caught in, which is, which ketchup does she want? So so you try to get a little the, bit of all of them. Yes, of course. You, you, get, you, you sit down in the aisle in the grocery store and you start pouring bottles into bottles. Or slightly more ketchup, is, Go ahead. Is the ketchup story a true story? Is yeah, this really it, it is a little bit. I mean, I don't know about 30. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm obviously exaggerating just a little bit, but I think it's a true story for me. Or this more embarrassing variation for me. The very first time my wife sent me to the store to get some kind of feminine products, I looked up at the shelves and went, uh, what fresh hell have I walked into? <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. We're talking about games that are frustrating, and yet we keep coming back to them. And this kind of speaks to my idea, which is that games are, are reflections of ourselves. They give us an, an impression of who we are. And I think those people who keep returning to a worker placement game, and, I, and there are lots of people who don't like them. I, I, I did not get to talk to a, the gentleman that, that doesn't like them, but there's, I have a friend who does not like worker placement games and has a lot of valid reasons, I think. Um, but what it comes down to is I think those of us who are doing that must be interested in identifying how to deal with that aspect of our lives. Maybe at some base level. you know, It's not like... I don't go to a game gathering and say, hmm, what's going to upset me the most? But that it is what a worker placement does. And I think it's just the challenge of how do you manage all that stuff? Well, I I love the idea that it is a reflection of you because you guys keep saying the word frustration. And I didn't use that word at all in my description. And my experiences weren't frustrating. And I, I did continue to play the game quite a lot on the iPad. So I was playing against, you know, um, ruthless uh ai characters um and but i didn't find the game frustrating and in in psychology there's this concept of frustration tolerance and it it makes me think that this is actually a good genre of game to kind of diagnose what's what's called low frustration tolerance like somebody who has low frustration tolerance is is someone who you know they they have a lot of problems you know everything bugs them because nothing goes their way and I don't know. I, I, it's an interesting reflection because uh, you guys keep saying how frustrating it is. I'm like, really? Is it that frustrating? Really? Uh, okay. Like someone we, just we took your make spot. A distinction here, real quick. <laughs> I, I think that there are some low-level uh, worker placement games that do not frustrate near as much. And and in that, I'm thinking of things like Stone Age and maybe Kalos and Waterdeep. Waterdeep is a good a good example. And then there are those like the ones that like the one that Brian talked about, Agricola, which is by Uwe Versenberg. This is one that's it's it really is about dealing with scarcity. And also the one that I, the ones that I'm talking about, the ones with by Stefan Feld. Stefan Feld seems to love worker placement games. That I think that it, it's about the so that there's there's kind of an exponentiality to the choices that you get in these low level games. You get less choices, and in these higher level games, you get more choices. And I think that's where I bog down it. It's almost like you, you can take it and at a basic level and then you can expand it further. I don't have near as much frustration with Waterdeep. I mean, yeah, there is a, 
a dammit that comes out on a regular basis because you know my my space got taken. But in Waterdeep, my I Brian's feel like wife. it's pretty. What's that? My Brian's wife. Like my, Brian's my, wife. By my wife. Yes. <laughs> yes. But I think in that game, there are so few choices available to you. I mean, unless there's a lot of people buying buildings. But even then, there for some reason, it just feels less invasive than some of these bigger games. Like Zulkin is another example. That's just a, that's a crazy worker placement game that really befuddles my mind, and yet I keep returning to it. So you're frustrated not by the lack of options, but by the, the, the quantity, like the, the, the vast amount of options? That might be fair to say. I, I think what's happening to me when I play the game is that it's not even so much the number of options. It is so my limited little brain looks at this board and sees that there are a number of ways to get to victory. Some of these ways work together and some of these ways don't work together. And I am trying my best to pit all of this together and figure out how am I best going to outsmart my opponents, get the stuff I need, so it's strategy, really. I think it comes down to it. Just trying to figure out what strategy I'm going to use to beat my opponents and actually successfully use my minimal amount of workers. Because, like Brian said in Agricola, two workers to start the game. Um, that's a, and and maybe thirty different places you can place those workers, right? Yeah, yeah. So then I'm sitting there with those two workers and I'm looking at all these cards and I'm trying to figure out well what's going to be best for me. Right now, should I farm this? Should I do this? It, it, yeah. So it, for me, it's not the frustration uh, thing. Is more about I have too many options, and my poor little brain broke down. <laughs> so, so Brian, what what is the most frustrating part for you? Um, specifically, ones like like um, Agricola. Agricola, you have to feed your workers. On top of having to accomplish certain goals, you have to feed your people. And God help you if one of the two or three spaces where you can go to get food are taken. You can either get food early and hope for the best or wait till later and try to build up what you need ahead of time so nobody can block you later. Now, if you wait, you might get more stuff, but you might not get the food because my my wife might go and steal all the food from you and then grin at you with that evil little sadistic grin she has that says... I don't need all this food, but you do, don't you? <laughs> it's, it's, that, it's that possibility of creating in your brain this nice strategy that you know will get you points and then figuring out about three turns in, some other schmuck is going for the same strategy I am. While on the other hand, this third player here is going for an entirely different strategy. They're competing with absolutely no one. And now you're competing with the person across the table from you who is on the same strategy as you are, which means they're trying to go for the same spaces you are. And do you stick to that strategy and hope to beat them out of their out of the goods and beat their score? Or do you switch strategies midstream and try to go for a whole other thing? It's 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 the it's the matter of trying to figure out your strategy and then watching your strategy get dashed to pieces. And picking up the pieces and running with another direction. There's a bit of frustration in there with that. So I'm going to challenge you a minute here and, and just say, so taking it outside of the game world, looking at the way you address situations, how does that reflect you? And also, how does it, uh, how does it speak to you about your experience of dealing with, I, I, you said dealing with scarcity. So how does, it deal, how does it speak to you in that way? Well, 
there's a series of videos that are going around the classroom. This is a good example of this. Um, I had a wide variety of things that I could have showed these, shown these kids in the last couple weeks of school. Um, they were through with testing. Their scores were all done. There was really the last week of school. There was not much we could do. So I focused on showing them some videos in, in the math class playing a game, videos that pertain to what they'd been learning. Give them a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of wind down time from class. And I picked a series of videos that another teacher had already shown them. I didn't know that. So now someone had taken my spot and taken my resources. And now I had to change course midstream or else I was going to have some rioting students on my hands who did not want to watch this particular video over again. <laughs> okay. How did you adapt? Like, what I went to another teacher's classroom and said, help with a little flash drive. They copied another movie over for me and it worked. So okay. it, was, it was fine. I changed strategies rather than just going, okay, let's see what new we can learn out of this. Oh, God, help me. <laughs> so I, mean, that, that, I think that's a, a great example of uh, like something that you would do in a game normally is you would have like, okay, this is my, my plan A, but I've, I've got a plan B if that, if that doesn't work. And I'm kind of moving in both directions. You know? And again, I think it's something that we probably exercise more often in a game than we do in real life or, you know, you didn't have a plan B necessarily. It, it all worked out, but you know you don't go into a situation like that thinking that another teacher was going to do the exact same thing. Right, and so I had two different videos. I had my plan A and plan B, and I had to go with plan C, which was the movie Coach oh. Carter, which I found <laughs> works like a freaking charm. This teacher who gave it to me said, you can show this to them again next week, and they'll sit quietly and watch this movie because they love Coach Carter. It's the power of Samuel L. Jackson, what can I say? Okay, I don't even know about this movie, but please go on. When, 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 when this teacher handed it to me, I, anyone who knows me, I'm not really a sports fan. She handed me one about high school uh, basketball coach, and I thought, oh, dear God, really? High school basketball coach and an inspiring story. Okay. Oh, it's Samuel L. Jackson. Okay, there's hope here. And I put it in, and there was, I, I was riveted. It was a good movie. All right. <laughs> So what, what I'm hearing you, you suggest, Josue, is that uh, the game at least teaches us to have a backup plan or it teaches us to be ready for, ready for the failure of our original plan. Well, it's good practice for that, right? And it, it's, it gets you in that mindset. And you can, obviously in a game, you can kind of see all the pieces laid out, you know? And you don't have to, it, it, it's not like real life, you know? But if you can kind of get into that, mode you know you can take that lesson out and say well you know well what are all the pieces what are all my options and i kind of apply that i don't know i think it i think it's one of those again games are one of those rare areas where you get to practice these skills that you that they come in really handy in real life and you don't get to practice them every day because that's not the way life works i yeah, that's absolutely true that's yeah. I, I try to tell people, and I don't know if everybody believes me, but I try to tell people that the reason we do this is not just for the fun of it. There's a deeper aspect here. We just don't pay attention to it because we're, you know, too busy being, we're too busy being on the surface level. But I, I think there's almost like a, an unconscious sort of uh, drive to to move to these games just because we're challenging ourselves in some way. So we're talking about worker placement games, and one of the things I want. To, rolling for change to do is not only talk about the experience of uh, how we play games and what the impact of playing games, sort of the phenomenological side of things, but I also want to talk about how we as professionals, I'm a therapist, Hostway's a therapist, Brian's a teacher, how we as professionals can bring these 
these games, these styles of games, this particular mechanic into our work life and, and what value, if any, that has. We've kind of hit on it, but I just want to kind of get some, some input from you guys. What, what do you say, Josue? So I see different ways that I would use it, both both with clients or, or in a classroom. I like the idea of using it in a group setting and having that lesson, you know, for a whole group of, of people where you can you can have a, a group of people be limited, you know, by these options at the table and then have one person choose that optimal option and then have everybody else react to it and kind of be able to kind of like that discussion that we just had um earlier in the show, but kind of do that with people who are, are there for some sort of either treatment or, or coaching or counseling and and really kind of feed off each other and, and learn with each other. You know, it's, it's again, like, like I said before, you have this perfect setup for this life lesson right here in this game, and it's, it's just handed to you, you know? And if you just take that moment, you know, we have that opportunity if we're running a group or something like that, but you could do that at home too, you know? Just just stop the game for a second and ask people how they're feeling at that moment and, and what's going on. I think it's a great opportunity for, for that um, frustration tolerance how that we're talking about. And that, again, I really like that idea of, of understanding that, you know, you, you may not get that, that ideal choice that you want, but you can still make progress towards your goal and having that in a setting, you know, in some sort of clinical or educational setting, you can actually, Everybody can kind of work together, even if it's a game that when you're playing the game, you know, it's not supposed to be cooperative, but to take that opportunity and make it cooperative just so everybody can kind of root for each other, help each other see options maybe that they didn't see before. Or maybe, you know, you you see you think that one option is the best one, but then when you talk to other people, it's like, oh, well, maybe that wasn't the best option based on one of the resources that I have. I think there's just so much... Um, opportunity for 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 discussion on with this type of game it's just oh it's so good so good i i love that idea i, I love the yeah. idea of, of you know the trick is especially in a therapy setting or in an educational setting like like brian's in right now the trick is trying to get people to talk about you know to see that it, it's valuable to talk about our experience uh, in a way where we're being open to one another about strategy about tactics about the way we handle the game I think some people are a little afraid to give away what they might think are trade secrets. You know, like I play, I play Caverna this way, and I don't want to tell anybody else because I don't want them to know my ideas. But it seems to me that if you're going to come to a game on a level playing field, for us to talk about the strategies and then choose the strategies based on our understanding of what the possibilities are, we're playing on a more level playing field than if I'm harboring information and saying, okay... I know exactly how to handle this. I got you, and I got you, and I got you, and I'm just going to play this this worker here and frustrate everybody. And ooh, I'm feeling so good about myself. That is thoroughly you know, entertaining. You know that way that you teach someone new. You know, um, it's the first time playing a game that you're familiar with, and you kind of say like, everybody just you know put your cards down so we can all see what's going on. You know, that's it's we already use that as a teaching opportunity. You know, right. and and to do that, you can do that for different lessons. You know, in different scenarios, not just to play the game, but to teach something else. What do you think, Brian? But yeah, I mean, everything you guys have said is pretty much what I was, you know, what I was thinking in my head was it's just this microcosm of decision making mm-hmm. and forward thinking and limited limited resources, limited options. 
that they have that people have in everyday life, but they have it over the course of maybe a month, two months, three months, and they don't get to see th the fruition of their efforts or the consequences of their actions for an extended period of time. In this small one to two hour piece of um, of gaming experience, they get to see how they react to those things on a smaller scale, on a more limited scale. Right. I, I love the idea, you know, as a therapist, I'm always looking for ways to talk to clients about decision-making because decision-making, it, it really comes down to a lot of what we talk about in therapy is decision-making. So certainly a lot in, t in education as well. And if I could find a way to adapt a, a worker placement idea to some kind of family dynamic situation where, you know, it, it's pretty much the family is, is trying to meet certain goals together. And, you know, if we can look at it from the point of view, well, okay, Bobby's going to do this, Sue's going to do this, and we're all kind of, we're working as a worker placement family. But you, you take the, you, you, the, the, the trick is trying to find the game for the therapy session. Because number one, worker placement games are not an hour long. And number two, uh, you would have to teach clients about what a worker placement is. You might have more of a chance of doing that in an educational setting because in an educational setting, you're able to say, okay, we're going to talk about making decisions. We're going to talk. There, there's more possibility there, it seems, than, than in that therapeutic hour, so to speak. I, I don't know. Yeah, what I typically do if I'm playing a game in a situation like that um, is if we don't have enough time, I take a picture of the board with my phone. I take mm -hmm. a picture of everyone's cards and goods, and then when we come back, I set the board back up the way I left it. And, and see, that's perfect. In the therapy hour, I think if I spent the entire therapy hour trying to explain what a worker placement game was, <laughs> I think I'd have a really hard time putting that on, <laughs> on an insurance contract of any sort. But it, it doesn't – it does actually – I think there's a way of talking about it. Maybe Josue can help me out here. I think there's a way of talking about it that we could – we could make it more therapeutic for people because we're really talking about making choices and living in scarcity and, and how we deal with choice, I think. I don't know. Uh, such a large part of, of counseling and therapy is the educational piece. You know, so just kind of being able to bring a particular theme up, like uh, something that comes up so often and is so important is like uh, rigid versus being rigid versus being flexible, right? And if you're really rigid, you're going to be really frustrated and you're going to have a hard time doing a lot of things because not everything can always go your way. And, and again, just having that opportunity to practice it over and over again. You know, the new round gives you another opportunity to, to test it again. And to, to, you know, if we can discuss, well, this is what I want to do. And then have that opportunity taken from you. You know, I might, I don't know, I might purposefully pick the one that you wanted just so you don't have that option. <laughs> right? You mean as a just, therapist? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Or, or in an educational setting, you know, with I have so many students who, who I would see would be so, so frustrated about not having, you know, not being able to do what they wanted or, or having that choice taken from them. And, and to be able, again, just being able to practice it mm -hmm. loosens it up, you know, and kind of shows you, well, it's not so bad. And I guess I didn't think about it that way. You know, those situations that can come up where you can where you can have those aha moments. Um, yeah, I would, I would definitely use it for something like if I was looking at themes that it really covers again, I, I don't know how much I would use it for the frustration tolerance because I think there are other things I would use that would be 
like faster, you know, that, that reset time to start the round over again. Um, it might be a little long in a, in a, in a, in a tabletop game with, with a lot of people, but I do like the idea, like the, the takeaway I'm, I have right now, I would have Lords of Waterdeep in my office ready to go for either a person or a group of people who seem to have issues with that, you know, rigid versus flexible thinking. And and just to show them that there are different ways and that sometimes it's okay to go with another option. And if you don't have a choice, there you can still move towards that goal. I think I've said that a few times already. But I, right. I love that idea and I love the way that that's presented in worker placement games. So I, I think a trick here might be, okay, so we, we set up the game. We explain a little bit about choices and, and we say, okay, we're going to play this game for about 20 minutes. And then we stop and we talk about what you did in the game and try to extrapolate it to uh, your life in general. You know, so how does this re- how does this represent how you normally handle choices? Because it looks like you wanted to make that move there and you couldn't make that move. What do you do with frustration when it comes up? What do you do with with not being able to make the choices that you want to make? I, oh, I see such label. great potential. Yeah, like you could label parts of the game, like the actual actions. You could label them with things from their real life or things that they've actually had issues with. Right. And that kind of changes it, especially like we, we talked about how um, Lords of Waterdeep doesn't necessarily have a, a story, right? Well, then it doesn't matter what the what the the house is or anything like that, right? Then you can you can change the title, so then it's actually a resource that you want, whether it's you know anything. It could be anything in a person's life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we we've heard someone talk about the the fact that. Uh, uh, the, the the theme may be post, pasted on there, and if that theme is pasted on, you could probably easily paste any other theme on that might fit, you know, into some kind of some kind of uh, situation talking about life goals and things of that nature. I love it. I, I'm I, I want to figure out how to do this and and see what what it's like to use this. It, it's it's going to be quite a trick, but it, it's still something that I, I I want to tie into what I do as a therapist. By the way, speaking of short worker placement games. Mm-hmm. There's a two-player game called Agricola, all creatures big and small. Right. You don't have to feed anyone. It's all about gathering animals. Okay. Mm. It's still a little frustrating because there's it's the same concept, but it's nowhere near the scale of base Agricola. But it's a simple two-player game, worker placement, where you're trying to get the most horses, get the most cows, get the most et cetera for your farm. And I feel like this this begs us to say, you know, this doesn't work with every client. This doesn't work with... Right. Every student, we want to be culturally relevant, but that's great because probably all creatures great and small is probably something that could be played in a shorter amount of time. It's already mm-hmm. set for an individual session kind of situation. You just have to have somebody who wants to do this this board game therapy kind of thing or or board game education. It's awesome. Just need to get out and play it more. <laughs> So, guys, I want to thank you so much for talking about worker placement games with me. I, I, I get really excited about this subject because uh, I think worker placement games say a lot about us. The, the board and, and our experience on the board is a perfect reflection of how we might handle some things in our lives. Um, so here, here's my ending thoughts. And, and anything you guys want to add is, is perfect fodder for the fire. But I, I want our listeners who are, are enjoying this conversation to write us and tell us what they think about the, this discussion. There's, there's a lot of things that we haven't considered. I'm sure we're just three guys uh, shooting, uh, sh- shooting some talk back and forth at one another and trying to uh, see what this is like from our own perspective. 
but I think that we've seen there's a lot of depth in worker placement games in particular, and maybe even some particular worker placement games have more depth than others. But what we've seen is that there are applications here that we can apply to both our in, in our professional life and to our social life. And I want the whole thing about rolling for change. I want people to come and talk to us. I want to develop a conversation about these games. I want I want people's experience to be laid bare so we can all talk about it. And uh, I, I'm very excited to have talked to you guys. Do you guys have anything else that you'd like to say before we uh, close out things? Well, for me, uh, I, Lords of Waterdeep was my first game, and I think it was really easy to get into. But it is a it is a it is a tabletop game, and it, there's a big box, there's a lot of pieces, and I found uh, I found it great that there's an iPad app that is like the perfect translation. Um, and that worked for me. I would probably recommend that to other people. What would you guys recommend as a starting point? And then maybe as a next level for me uh, regarding worker placement games. Like where should I go and where should people start? Well, you've already started with um, Lords of Waterdeep. I think a good next step is Pillars of the Earth, if you can get a copy of that one. Pillars of the Earth is really kind of where I started. And before Lords of Waterdeep came along, it was... Um, and even before Stone Age was considered the gateway game for worker placement. Um, Stone Age is a good um, starting point as well. Um, I still prefer Lords of Waterdeep because it's a little simpler um, than Stone Age in its own way. But yeah, definitely um, go for Pillars of the Earth. And then the next step beyond that, my love, my favorite, and going along with Mr. Richard Miles, Viticulture. Viticulture is a great game. I, for me, I think that, uh, well, I haven't played it yet, and I, but I understand it's a really good walk into worker placement world, and that is Kalos. Uh, that is considered to be the, quote, first game that is a worker placement game, and that game uh, seems to have kind of a, I don't know, you, you'll have to tell me, Brian, you've played this game. Is, is that a gateway game, or is that something more heavy? God, No. That one, th- that game. one, that one's what they consider a brain burner. That one's once you've played a few a few worker placement games, test yourself with Kalos. Kalos is heavy strategy. The board changes every single game. You'll never play the exact same game twice. Um, people build different buildings, or they won't build them, and it's it's really thinky and very kind of in your face, back and forth. Um, you start off with very limited opportunity to get to get places and you have to pay for each place you go to and if some schmuck passes ahead of time you have to pay even more to take the action that you want people can cut you off by passing and just not taking any more actions and making it more expensive for the other players okay so, so there's, really, there's a lot really puts there's a in lot the competition in there. part okay yeah. so that's a really heavy game i hostway i would say that stone age which was my first my first introduction to worker placement games is a, uh, I think it's a wonderful, perfect work of placement game to start with. If you're moving on from, from Lords of Waterdeep, I think it's got just enough depth to be a medium-level game that can sort of pour you into the worlds of Agricola, Caverna, Steffenfeld stuff, because Steffenfeld, if you really want a, another brain-burner type thing, go for a Steffenfeld game like Bora Bora or Trajan, or uh, there's a lot of great Steffenfeld games, so... Yeah, Bora Bora is a lot of fun. I have to play it again when I actually understand it for once. 
And again, I uh, <laughs> want to make the call out to listeners to let us know what you think uh, of worker placement games, what you think are the good worker placement games, what you think are the worker placement games to turn people away from. Uh, do you agree that Viticulture is unbalanced, or do you like it just as much as our friend Richard does? Uh, just send us some information. So I'd love to hear from our listeners regarding worker placement games. What do you enjoy? What do you not enjoy? Why is why do you play worker placement games? Any input you want to give us, you can send to gamers at rollingforchange.com. That will that will get a message to all of us, and we'll be happy to respond back. We'll either respond back on the show or respond back in person. Uh, we're very excited to be doing the, this podcast, and we really want to hear from the audience that's listening to us. So please, please, please. Write us, tell us you love us, tell us you hate us, tell us you want to flambe us on some kind of really hot, fiery kind of thing. I'm, I'm good with that. That works. Good, it's good. <laughs> flambe Woody. Yes, flambe me. Uh, I, I will find some way to get out of it. That, that'll be part of our... We'll, we'll talk about games with, where people flambe people. Those <laughs> sound frustrating. Those Eruption. are frustrating, especially if you're the prom player. Eruption, uh, Downfall of Pompeii. Oh, yeah, there are a few. Excellent. (laughs) So once again, you're listening to Rolling for Change. Please email us, gamers, at rollingforchange.com. And we will see you on the next episode in which we will be discussing the ever-popular cooperative games, which there's so much you can do with cooperative games. And... uh, you can also send us your, your take on cooperative games. Send us audio is also okay. You've been listening to Rolling for Change. We'd like to tell you a little bit about what's going on in our world so you can check out our individual projects. Brian, what's, what, what are you working on right now? Well, we just finished wrapping on a um, web series called Suspension of Disbelief that I'm a small part of. Um, you can find information on that at the website isthatblakeoutlaw.com. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes. And I'm also currently beginning the process of pre-production for a YouTube channel called Board Game Lexicon, where I'll be discussing different terms in board gaming so that people newer to the hobby can you know, be able to say, what, what the heck is a worker placement game? And I will visually explain what a worker placement game is. Yep, and you can find more of my work at geektherapy.com, where I talk a lot about uh, therapy and education and just how geek culture is good for you in a sense. And I also have another podcast uh, you can find at psychtechpodcast.com, which is about psychology and technology. Excellent. And I am working on, well, I have another podcast that I do. It's called Soundscape. It is a progressive rock podcast and I'd love for you to go over and check it out. You can find it at progrock.com or also on my page, which is soundscapeprog.com. Sometimes there's some board game content, or you you can at least find me in a more uh, giddy, less academic mood. There you go. So thanks so much for listening, folks. We look forward to your correspondence. Keep on rolling for change. Good. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Good yeah. job, people. Good job. Excellent. Woo! We survived an episode. We survived an episode. We made an episode. <laughs>